The future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. If you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and give us a thumbs up on YouTube or a review on Apple. Now, sitting next to me today in the front seat is Richard Shell. Richard is a professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School. He is the author of five books, including The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. His book, Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, was named Business Book of the Year by the largest business bookseller in the United States and was shortlisted for Management Book of the Year by the British Library. His best-selling book on negotiation, Bargaining for Advantage, is required reading at many business and law schools. And his titles have sold over a half a million copies in 17 languages. His legal scholarship has been twice cited by none other than the United States Supreme Court. And he has taught everyone from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and Fortune 500 CEOs to FBI hostage negotiators, Navy SEALs, and United Nations peacekeepers. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. A great pleasure to it be here. It is a great pleasure to have you. Richard, let's just 
go right in for the bang. This season's theme has been around what I call the silent revolution. It's a revolution of thought, particularly around the historical institutions, including and perhaps especially organized religions, that have framed and even enforced ethical codes throughout both our culture and many others. These institutions, the data has repeatedly shown, are in decline. Do you feel, Richard, that secular institutions like businesses can or should step in and, and take their place? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think uh, educational institutions such as the Wharton School, a business school, uh, are uh, they're sort of secondary to the primary value creation uh, and um, cultural institutions that uh, religion is, is an example of. So I think it's very difficult to rely on that kind of institution to instill values. I, my dad was a general in the Marine Corps, and it's not that values can't be instilled later in life. I was a kid, um, and we lived on the uh, Marine base in Paris Island, South Carolina, where Marines are trained. And I was, even as a young person, a, a kid, really uh, just astonished to see the transformation in a person who came in as a scruffy-looking uh, teenager and then, you know, a few short months later marched mm. out uh, behind a banner as a United mm -hmm. States Marine with a whole different uh, step mm. and a whole different look in their eyes. So I think it's possible for secular institutions, and the military is one, uh, to instill values and to, uh, to create self-discipline and to uh, kind of provide some of the sort of superstructure that all of us require to live successfully. But I don't think we can look at uh, universities uh, or business schools for that kind of, uh, for that kind of structure. I myself think of the business school world that I teach in as a place where we remind mm -hmm. people and prioritize, help them remember that they should mm -hmm. prioritize the values they brought to us. Uh, and some of them are um, coming from religious traditions. Uh, some of them come from a kind of combination of uh, secular and religious traditions. Uh, mostly they come from families. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I do is try to re remind people of the values uh, that their families tried to instill uh, from whatever sources the families were absorbing them from. Uh, and then just reinforce them as a professional matter. So I'm, I'm pessimistic that institutions like the ones I'm part of can do the work. Uh, we can only amplify. And in terms of being pessimistic about that, why? I think a lot of what uh, goes into the formation of values is the intensity mm -hmm. with which those values are communicated and reinforced in a social context. And if you think of, again, I can go back to the Marine Corps recruit training, it's surround sound, you know, 24-7, you've got this whole new set of values that's being instilled in you, and you're just not a minute off. You know, it's reinforced, right. reinforced, reinforced. Um, and I think when you're growing up in a family, although you're not as aware of it as an, 
that being that kind of intensiveness, unless it's a, unless it's maybe an abusive mm -hmm. family where you actually feel that kind of coercion, it's still 24 seven. And a lot of what's going on is unconscious on the part of the parents mm -hmm. and the children where children are modeling their behavior of what they see their parents doing. Uh, they're listening to uh, the way the values are discussed right. and, the, and the way that outside events are discussed. All that kind of processes. So if you take a value like honesty or compassion, you, you know, the, the, the early lessons that will be led, uh, learned in a family might just be, uh, Johnny, you know, uh, you broke the vase. You shouldn't lie about that. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll forgive you. Uh, you know, you can help us figure out if we can repair it. Uh, and there's a, a kind of a, a moment, a teaching right. moment that might occur around honesty. Um, and business schools and educational institutions do their best in, in reinforcing some of the basic values like that. They may have an honor right. code or they may have a pledge you sign about cheating. Um, but it's pretty weakly um, mm -hmm. communicated. It's only episodic mm -hmm. and it's rarely enforced. Mm -hmm in an intensive way. The social structure just is too flat, too widespread, too sort of loosey-goosey. Mm -hmm. The intensity, I think, is what brings the uh, the value to the deep level of unconscious motivation. Yet, according to a 2020 survey by Deloitte, only 51% of millennials see business as a force for good. And that's down from 76% in 2017. And only one third see business leaders as having a positive impact on them. If we feel that business doesn't have the capacity or really isn't the right place to be part of the ethical stew that we swim in every day, how can we begin to think about that changing? Or do you think that that's really something that maybe we should just throw our hands up and, and say we accept? No, no. Um, I didn't say business couldn't be a force for good or couldn't be a source of values. I said that that it's very rare that you would see an institution like business be the original mm -hmm. source of these mm -hmm. values. Um, and I think people, um, you know, when I teach negotiation, I like to say people negotiate, countries don't mm -hmm. negotiate, companies mm -hmm. don't negotiate, and businesses are people. Uh, and I think what we try to do in our courses and what I try to do in my executive programs is bring be people to bring people in business to a sense of integration. Because what it tends to happen is there's a separation. People see their, a lot of what we do, we define ourselves by the mm -hmm. roles we play. Mm -hmm. You know, I, this became very obvious to me when I first became a parent. Uh, I, I was, um, uh, you know, we brought home our first, we have two sons and we brought home our first son uh, from the hospital and uh, we were in our apartment in Boston and, you know, it was time to change the diaper and I went, oh my God. <laughs> I'm a dad, yeah, right. you know, it's like, that hit at home. This, <laughs> this is it, you know, and uh, there was no like, Hey, I'll trade this in. You know, I think I'll take a buy, you know, I'd like two weeks off, please. You know, this was it 24 seven dad and learning to play the role of dad. Uh, of course, what did I draw on? I didn't know it, but I drew on mm -hmm. my dad and my dad's relationship to my mom. 
And all these things that had been in Kuwait before that moment when I assumed that role, and I realized I had the role. I mean, there's a there's a moment of like terror where you go, my gosh, you know, I've got this right. role. It's it, and I think that happens to people in business in professional life. You know, you're a lawyer, or as I am a fully recovered <laughs> lawyer. But there was a day, I, there was a day in your professional life when you graduate from law school, and you join whatever professional uh, firm or company you first worked for, when you suddenly noticed someone looked at you, and they expected you to be the mm -hmm. lawyer. And up to that point, you'd been a law student or you'd been uh, whatever, and you just sort of went, holy smoke, you're going to rely on me to be a lawyer? Uh, and, and so at that moment where the role became vivid, that's where the integration that we try to make vivid for students and executives takes place because it's not there's not just a separate, you're not just like a, a, a lawyer, like there's a robot called a lawyer, and then there's the yeah. rest of you. There's you occupying this role. And then the question is, okay, how do I integrate my true self, my authentic self, my home self, my community self into this professional self and bring the appropriate parts of my professional uh, identity and my personal identity together and, and be effective? Now, there are certain things we don't want a professional lawyer to do in the role of lawyer. We don't want them to use a client conference to try to convert them, the client, to some religious <laughs> cult. Um, and that's just inappropriate, right? Even though it's strongly felt right. valued by the person occupying the professional role. So so uh, I think the, the part I take hope from is what's going on is there's a lack of integration between the personal and the professional realm over certain basic values that ought to be informing both sides of the life. And the, these, these are values like compassion mm -hmm. for suffering, um, uh, honesty, uh, and transparency, uh, values like fairness and justice, uh, dignity. Uh, uh, these are things that uh, you would want to be held dear at home, and you'd want them to be held dear in the school district where your child goes to school and you'd want them to be held dear in the company you work for or the legal firm that you're a lawyer in because they are transcendent values that all form the superstructure for a professional life. It isn't some special occasion. Um, the lawyer role is justified by its embodiment of the value of justice and honesty and compassion. Um, so, uh, so what happens is people get preoccupied. You know, there's a wonderful psychological uh, phenomenon called inattention blindness. Have you ever heard? No, of that I one, have not. Although I fear that I might have it every now and then. And actually, I correct that because I believe you discussed it in your book. And yeah, I so did. I, and and there's a wonderful YouTube video that your uh, listeners can go to called the Invisible Gorilla. Yes. And uh, there's some wonderful research that goes to this inattention blindness. But, you know, fundamentally what it is, it's a big, funny psychological term, but the real essence of it is, is you're distracted by one thing in your life and mm -hmm. you don't see the stuff sitting right. right in front of you. And, you know, in, in an easy example is you're uh, distracted by the conversation you're having with a passenger in the car and you don't see the child right. crossing the road right. in front of you. So it's the, the child's there, you're looking right at them, but you don't right. see them. And 
I think what happens in professional life is people get preoccupied with the competition, yeah. uh, with the deadline, with the expectations that the stock market yes. might have or the expectation the boss has. And they stop seeing the values mm -hmm. that are being violated because they don't see them. They're blind to them in that moment. And I think it's really what our job is as educators in the business school world is, is to point out that that's a very likely thing to happen and then put the uh, red light, yellow light in play so that their minds are associating this sort of pressure to, to make a competitive goal or to give way to the boss as a signal. Right. Watch out, watch out, watch out. Inattention blindness moment ahead. And remember their values. Uh, remember honesty first. Remember family first. Remember compassion uh, and a relief of suffering, uh, protection of the innocent. And that that value transcends this uh, particular moment where the value that the firm is embracing to win or to produce or to uh, make the client deadline. Uh, and that's, you know, they, those are swamping the right stuff. And so it's really, it's not that people don't have the values. I think it's the, that people uh, are, are incented to mm -hmm. forget them. Well, what I'm hearing you talk about is related to two of the themes that I personally noticed reading your book, The Conscience Code, one of which you made more explicit. The other, which I don't recall it being as explicit, but it's absolutely embedded in what you're saying. And it, in a way, once you absorb the whole idea of having ethics as something that's specifically guiding you throughout your professional journey, it almost goes without saying. But, but I also believe nothing ever goes really without saying because there's someone <laughs> who needs to hear it. So. Yeah. Concept number one is the idea of ethics and ethical thinking as a disciplined practice that you talk about with um, a sense of making and understanding and prioritizing the small little decisions that we make every day. But number two, and this is the one that I saw as a little bit more subtly embedded in your work, but nonetheless there, the idea of being self-aware of our own limitations, dispositions, and our relationship to the environment that we're in. So, for instance, what you were talking about earlier, being self-aware that it's possible due to some of the expectations about what is professional or not in the workplace, we, we may not be fully integrating ourselves into the job. Therefore, in that process of of severing our professional selves from our authentic selves, we leave behind ethical constructs that may be guiding our lives elsewhere. Uh, another example of that might be being self-aware, as you talk about in more detail, and we'll discuss at one point during this interview, who and what we are as personality types in the job and how that can impact uh, the ethical decisions that we make, not to mention how we assess those that may be under our supervision and are working with us um, as we look at them. For instance, as you and I discussed pre-interview, I you, there's a test in your book, which I took, and it described my personality type in a workplace as someone that was very concerned with getting the job 
done and coming up with win-wins. I wasn't totally obsessed with being a people pleaser at all costs, but at the same time, I also had an understanding that at least when it came to negotiations or navigating difficult circumstances, maintaining the relationships with those around me had value. Now, that is placed at a premium in a lot of large organizations, but other personality types, the ones that are concerned with their values, 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 and they don't care whose head they butt against, well, some organizations have a problem with that. And so I am curious as to your thoughts as to tools people might have um, or be able to utilize or pull from within when they're in their work lives to be able to make sure that they are conscious of that self-awareness, number one, and number two, practicing this stuff all the time. Yeah, that, you know, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely, I, let me go back to the parent thing for a second. So once you're a parent, do you ever forget that you're a parent? Well, that's scary unless, if you do. unless you're asleep. <laughs> I mean, your children won't let you forget, right? Uh, you know, your duty is there, uh, you know, uh, every time you, you know, you walk in the door or walk out the door or the phone rings and your kid's sick or whatever it is, it's with you. You're now a parent and that's part of who you are. And I think this is the same thing when it comes to values at work. Uh, I think the, one of the most important things people can do to bring this sense of self-awareness to their day-to-day -day life at work is to think of themselves as a person of conscience. Uh, someone who has values and they implement those values at home by, by duty and habit. I mean, if you, you're a parent, you're not going to leave your child uh, alone in the cereal aisle and go wandering mm -hmm. off uh, and looking to see if the butcher might want to talk to you. Uh, your duty as a parent would completely transcend the urgency of getting to the butcher counter. And when you're a person of conscience, which most people are, I mean, I think this is not something anyone has to be sold on. Uh, a, a good person is a person of conscience. There's someone for whom values matter. Now, there are very few, roughly 3% of people who are psychopaths and they have no mm -hmm. conscience. They have no empathy. They have nothing but mm -hmm. self-interest and they can't be appealed to on the basis of anything mm -hmm. related to values. And they're extremely adept at manipulating mm -hmm. the rest of us. My book is not for them. Uh, uh, there's no mm -hmm. way to convert them. That's a genetic mm -hmm. problem. Uh, but the rest of us are and don't have much trouble identifying ourselves right. as being people of conscience. So then one of these moments happens at work where you're somewhat disturbed. Uh, you recognize a variation in the pattern of your professional life in that someone's asked you to like put a date on a report that actually is backdating yeah. the report. And the boss just says, nah, don't worry about it. You know, everybody yeah. does it. And if, if you're just thinking about yourself as a professional and you think, well, the boss is a professional, done it longer than me, maybe they're right, maybe everybody does do it, and you, and you surrender your values to that professional role. You become complicit in someone else's vision of that professional role. If, on the other hand, you say to yourself, well, this is um, disturbing, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? For the most part, I think the answer to that is usually do something. That is, ask mm -hmm. a question, uh, clarify, get more information, uh, make sure 
that and confirm that this actually is a standard practice that everybody does. Because your discomfort is that inner voice that is always there and that is telling you, if you let this moment pass and agree to do something you're uncomfortable about, two things may happen. One, you will come to regret it and have great remorse because you'll become part of a conspiracy that you want nothing to do with, which is the worst case scenario in some ways. And the other is you'll become inured to it. And the little voice will suddenly get dimmer mm-hmm. and quieter. Mm-hmm. And then, then you're part of a system that's corrupt. And now you're corrupt. And that's, that's worse. In, in a sense, you've sold your soul for the, just to avoid a moment when mm-hmm. you ask the boss a question. Hardly seems like a good mm-hmm. trade-off. So the, mm-hmm. that question, what would a person of conscience do? is a way of prompting yourself to ask the right kind of questions, to investigate yourself, to interrogate your values, and then to think, okay, you know, there's really some problem here. It's not a very big one, but it's a little one. What should I do? Now, that's a whole different category question than whether Mm -hmm. I should do something. And, uh, And I think my whole agenda is to wake people up to the fact that they're people of conscience and that they're people of conscience in more than one part of their lives, to bring that, to integrate that into their professional role, whether they're a warehouse worker, a lawyer, a waiter, or a financial auditor, and then give them toolkits, tactics, uh, options about what to do now that they've gotten that self-awareness to wake themselves up. And so I think it's, I think it's, we're not that far in any individual case from having people become more proactive and effective, uh, implementing their values and becoming uh, vocal about their values uh, in a work setting. Uh, but, but we sort of let the whole dialogue about this just be ta- taken over by the imperatives of goals, mm-hmm. uh, outcome mm-hmm. goals, you know, uh, productivity yeah. goals. Uh, and we just sort of say, well, that's work and we'll just, you know, different rules apply. And I don't think so. I don't, when you're, when you're lying on your deathbed, uh, those are the things that are going to come back and you're going to say, did I do it? Did I do the right thing? Did I do what I could have done in that situation? Your book, The Conscience Code, was so rich, contained so much in terms of actionable thinking triggers, as well as processes and techniques that we can use to move ourselves more and more in that direction, that it honestly could require for a thorough discussion of both it and the implications of what you were writing about a whole five or six hour podcast. That being said, even in the little discussion you had of a tiny part of it, right a minute ago, there are a zillion different tentacles that we could all pull from and and begin to have conversations about. I'll focus on two. First of all, you mentioned in passing that there are these group of people that are psychopaths that are maybe two or three part uh, percent of the population and that we're not really talking about in this conversation because they're not going to be people of conscience no matter what. That being said, let's face it. They're the ones that get promoted. 
They're the ones that we have to deal with. So then the reason why I mentioned that is because we all operate within the corporate cultures that we have. And if they have those yep. sort of people at the top and they do, I, I, maybe not universally, but it's hard to argue that they don't end up at the top with some frequency. It almost makes you want to just throw up your hands. Not only that, but when it comes to the examples of the people that might be asked, for instance, to backdate that document, that story, for those who are watching or listening, is one, a very tiny snippet of a very dramatic and startling story that you share in a book full of very, very dramatic, startling, I would even say terrifying stories that leads to where this question is ultimately going. Another one of those stories involved a financial scandal, and I'll never forget one of the players in it was just a bookkeeper who made an entry. She was told to do this entry, and she did it. Her life ended up being destroyed because of this complicitness. Well, the pressure, the pressure, this was the WorldCom scandal uh, and one of the biggest scandals in the 20th century. The pressure was put on her and one colleague to put a false entry in the books. It was not even presented as a false entry. It was a stretch yeah. of an accounting principle um, in order to make a quarterly reporting deadline. Um, and uh, they were sure that it was just this once. Uh, and they were assured that they were doing it for the company, that the company needed right. them to do this. Uh, and uh, so they had all of those false signals of loyalty and, you know, uh, 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 very limited scope. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then they did it. And as soon as they did it, they became part of the conspiracy because after they did it, they had to help yeah. cover it up. And then they had to do it again. And then they had to do it again to cover up the cover up. And, you know, that's that little moment. It was just a day at the office. Yeah. They didn't expect this day, but, and they knew they were doing something wrong. They knew it. Uh, they, they told the author of the book that I drew this story from. They knew it at the time, but they were allowed themselves to be drawn in by the beguiling and, and, uh, sort of charming, uh, statement that they were going to do this as part of the greater good. And, and then, uh, it ended up bringing down a company that cost 40,000 jobs and many, many billions of dollars, uh, as these leaders. I'm not sure the leaders were psychopaths in the clinical sense. I think they themselves had completely lost their bearings. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how you can incrementally go from being a good person to being, um, uh, a Nazi. Uh, and not even be aware that you've made the transition. Uh, and corporate leaders, I think, sometimes do that. Um, but they, they had the chance and they backed away from it and they had the consequences were very severe. I mean, just to get one, let me just yeah. say one thing about the, your underlying question. When you have a psychopath in the picture, and it's, you know, it's a clinical definition for that. So it's hard. I'm not a psychologist to define like right. an example. Who's a current you know, psychopath we can point to? Uh, but they are the enemy. I mean, it seems to me uh, I'm trying to write a book to help the 97%. Mm. I can't write one to help mm -hmm. the three, but I can help the 97 identify the three and defeat mm -hmm. them. 
my, I mean, my, my, this is where criminal law, this is where whistleblowing, this is where uh, coalitions of the willing, uh, you know, this is where the hardest ball tactics that people can come up with are necessary to defeat the psychopath who is trying to steal everybody's soul and their wealth and mm-hmm. their family security. Now, they're, they're nothing less than a barbarian attacking your family. I actually don't think that the starkness of that metaphor is unjustified. We choose not to see it that way because we live in these work environments day after day after day. And so one of the scary things about toxic work environments in particular is that they deaden us to our humanity. I would love to hear any practical tips you have for someone who might be watching or listening who's working in one of those environments. I've been there, and God knows, Richard, working for the government as long as I did, I've experienced it and seen people. You become so dead inside that the concept of you as a person, once you clock in to that work, let alone a person yeah. possessing a thing called conscience, you've, you're so dehumanized that even raising yourself to the level of humanhood, let alone human, humanity, yeah. it's, it's well, almost too far to grasp. It's hard. What, what do you say to someone it's like hard. that? It's hard. Well, you're, you know, you're, of course, you're talking about somebody who's already halfway down the river because they have let themselves um, become complicit uh, earlier when there was, um, uh, their sensitivities were still mm-hmm. uh, alert. Um, but we don't have to look too far uh, to see that uh, sensitivities may be dulled, but they seldom go away. And uh, we just had an example of the governor of New York uh, uh, who uh, has been um, misbehaving in the office with respect to sexual behavior for a long time and getting away with it. And I'm sure there were a lot of people, in fact, some pretty um, otherwise upstanding people in nonprofits and, and other groups that are supportive of women's rights who allowed themselves to become complicit in helping him cover up and attack his accusers. And they themselves got sucked into this vortex of power and um, and influence uh, and probably talked themselves into thinking they were doing something for the greater good. But the but that but nevertheless. There were those voices, the little people, the woman who refused yeah. to stand down. And I would I tell your uh, listeners one thing. Never take this journey alone. Mm-hmm. The, the damage mm-hmm. comes when you allow yourself to be isolated, mm-hmm. when you allow yourself to be uh, minimized and mm-hmm. marginalized, and you know what's going mm-hmm. on is toxic. You know it's wrong, but you don't speak because you think you're the mm-hmm. only one. And there is always someone mm-hmm. else, always. And one of the first things I say in the book, and I say it over and over, is believe in the yes. power of two. Believe in the power of two. And, and so as soon as this, this uneasiness begins to get evoked in you, and that's your conscience speaking, it's a, emotionally it feels mm-hmm. like uneasiness or anxiety, but that's where it's coming from. Then your job is to seek out a fellow to speak with. Now, that could be someone at home. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be someone at work. Uh, But someone who will say, I understand what you're saying, and you're right. This is wrong. And then you start seeking a pathway 
to the people who have influence, even if you don't, that are still awake enough to see that this is wrong. And, you know, in every toxic organization, there are still people, quite mm -hmm. a few people, who actually know what the mm -hmm. right thing is. But they've either gotten silent by habit or they've been silenced mm -hmm. by fear. And, um, and as soon as one person asks that question, do you see what I see? It opens this space for the uh, other person to go, I do see what you see. And I'm so glad yeah. that you yeah. see it too. And now there's two of you. Uh, the, the jump from one to two is exponential. But the, but the, it isn't, it's actually a shorter jump to go from two to four. Um, and in every values initiative I've ever been part of, and I have them just like everybody else does in my life. Uh, I'm a professor at a very complicated university. Uh, not everything goes according to the way you would like it to go. And you have some obligations to step up and try to get it right. I always, uh, think of it more, it's, it's sort of like, um, what's the, you know, when you, when you do, uh, uh, what are those? It's a, you do a mail thing and you send a, a letter out, yes. a chain letter. You, you do a chain letter of values. So you, you send this message to one other person and they say, yes, I see it. Then you say, would you go send that message to two people? And I'll send it to two people. And now I'll come back and we'll see how we did. So then now we got six people. And each of those six people send their values message out to two more people. And then pretty soon you get to have a meeting of the people. Now, maybe you have it at night in a, you know, in a secret in a, room in a somewhere place that doesn't have the lights on. <laughs> but, but then you've got a values initiative underway. Uh, and, you know, I, the last chapter in the book is called yes. Choose to Lead. And you've chosen to lead. Now, you may not be a leader in like, I'm the vice president of whatever, but you're leading with mm -hmm. values. And people have a way of responding to that. They have a way of, you know, going, this is more important than what's going on out there. I want to be on the right side of this question. And, uh, and so they want to join up. Uh, and, you know, so I think the power of two is my first uh, most practical and uh, most effective, and the research shows that it's actually, it actually completely empowers people in a whole different way when it comes to values, uh, that, uh, that that's the first step to take. The show's tagline this season is a movement for those seeking meaning. The underlying theme is that the quest for meaning, which includes ethics, creates oh, connection. Whereas unethical behavior, as you're describing it, ultimately severs connection, connection to prosperity, connection to each other, connection to trust. Trust is, to me, the underlying glue that builds a relationship. Unethical behavior rips that apart, even if there might be some sort of superficial trust that's created in propagating the unethical act. So, and the reason why I mention that is the rule of two, which has this multiplier effect that you're talking about if the, those involved engage in it, really is recreating that ultimate human need that we have for connection around ethics and meaning. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes, absolutely. And, and I mean, I would just add one dimension to that litany you just went through, and that is, uh, 
unethical behavior, becoming complicit in a toxic workplace or uh, uh, empowering a bully in the office, it cleaves you from yourself mm. because you are a person of mm. conscience. And when you act as if you're not, this dissonance sets mm -hmm. in and you start disrespecting yourself. You start lacking mm -hmm. confidence in the person that you are at your mm -hmm. best. And you, and, and you backed away from the opportunity to be expressive of that. Mm -hmm. And so next time another opportunity comes, you back mm -hmm. away from it sooner. So, mm -hmm. so it's, a, it's a dialogue within mm -hmm. yourself that you've uh, injured uh, and you've alienated yourself from. So I think a lot of why people respond when you speak up for values is it's healing for them within themselves. And people really crave that sense of integration, which is a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, uh, so it's, a, it's, it's the baseline. It's where it begins. Uh, I mean, you could have the most meaningful job in the world. You could be um, like an evangelical minister trying to save souls. And if you are conducting in a way that is unethical, then it all stinks. Yeah. It all falls yeah. apart. Um, you could have the most menial job in the world. You could be the janitor uh, of a baseball park. And if you do it with a sense of integrity meaning, uh, social connection to the people there. Uh, uh, you're awake yeah. to the values of compassion, that and justice. When you see uh, a parent abusing yeah. a child in front of you, your, your, your life is yeah. meaningful as you live that day at the Bell Park. I was imagining this person and my heart was warming even thinking about her or him. Richard, yeah. Doctors, lawyers, and other professionals have codes of ethics that we have to follow or risk losing licensure. Business people, on the other hand, do not need licenses. In fact, within businesses, uh, codes are left up to individual companies to have or, or not, and some don't. Why is right. that, and do you think that that's a good thing? Well, I think that if you look carefully at the uh, professional codes of ethics, they all apply, for the most part, to what we call learned professions. So doctors, lawyers, um, they are uh, professions that identify as professions. Uh, they have special status ranking uh, hierarchies that are socially mm -hmm. embedded in the way they do their practice. Um, and once you get past that, uh, even professors like me, there's no mm -hmm. code of ethics for professors. There's some, each, each university might have a conflict of mm -hmm. interest code or a behavioral code for, you know, students, but it's, it's, it's part of a contract. Uh, it's not part of a profession. And I think the reason is because all these other activities are so unregulated. They come in so many varieties with so many different kinds of, um, of uh, variables in terms of people's mm -hmm. backgrounds, in terms of what's required to do the work, that they um, a, a code would just be, um, you'd have to rewrite it for every uh, edition of what's happening. But I'll tell you what we've tried to do at Wharton, knowing that that's a problem. Because occasionally some of the business schools have actually tried to write a code and get their students to right. sign off on it. And they all fail. They, all fail. It, it, they become kind of jokes in a way. What we did, we, we created something we call the Commitment Project. 
And we ask students before they graduate to identify the five top values that they hold individually and to articulate those values on a short list. And then we ask them to come together and they, they could be whatever the values that they are. We don't have a, uh, we don't say pick from these 10, you know. Um, then they ask them to come together before graduation and they meet in a small group, a large group, but they meet right. in small tables and they share with each other what their commitments are. And their commitments tend to be things like um, family, honesty, um, professional uh, excellence, uh, you know, in, in the, mm -hmm. whether they're engineers mm -hmm. or whatever they are. Uh, and they have to articulate them and then they have to explain why they pick them to each other. They confess, they witness their own values. Then we give them a little metal um, embossed um, thing like a, it looks like a business card, but it's actually made of metal. And it has their values mm -hmm. printed on it for mm -hmm. each individual. And we hand it to them and say, keep this. And you are the one who invented it. You're the one who uh, has articulated it. Uh, it's your duty to live mm -hmm. by these rules. And we send them off. And I think that's, that's as close as we could come to having a professional values list that a business school can um, facilitate. Uh, but the students find it very meaningful. Yeah, I bet they do. Uh, and they're very earnest yeah. about their discussion of it. Uh, and uh, it makes a big, it's a, it's a separate thing around graduation time. It's, a, it's not part of the family uh, celebration. I have a personal obsession that I'm just going to reveal to you and to everyone who's watching or listening today. You're going to know one of my secrets. Okay. I have an obsession, and that obsession is with accepting choice in my life. Just the other day, I was talking to a friend of mine about her relationship with uh, someone else in her family. And she was saying, I don't have a choice. I have to deal with this person this way. This person treats me like garbage, but I don't have a choice. I have to. I this, that, and the other. And I kept saying, because I have this internal obsession, you have a choice. You have a choice. You just don't like the consequences of that choice. But You've got a choice. And the reason why I said that is because, and why this obsession of mine has uh, intensified, has been that as I've interviewed various ethicists or done reading for this, readings for this show, or just thought about it generally, yet another subtle theme that comes out over and over again is agency and the extreme extent to which we have it. We, you say, have choices that we can make in our workplaces or I assume by extension in our personal lives when little things happen that cross our conscience code. What are you telling us, if anything, taking that even further out about the society's larger choices around the ethical behaviors of our leaders and particularly in a free society like ours, I'm not talking about a tyranny where you truly don't, your only choice may be to just die. But in a free society like ours and a free economy, how we address leadership crises around ethics that we're facing systemically. Yeah. And I mean, it, I think the, the largest, you've just hit on the largest type of pressure problem that any individual can encounter. 
and you know you can get pressure from peers you can get pressure from bosses you can get pressure from your own you know view of incentives and what what you're you think you're you know have to do to 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 get your paycheck uh, but the biggest one of all is the pressure of a system mm. uh, and the a system level pressure could become come from a corrupt company you know the whole company is yeah. a spot is a ponzi scheme it can come from a corrupt yeah. government uh it can come from a corrupt religious community um, but any individual who's in one of these systems thinks to themselves what can i do uh, i mean i'm up against something so bigger than me that i just as you say don't have a choice and you know, I think I take um, I take some comfort. You know, ever heard of the philosopher Hannah Arendt? Tell us about Hannah Arendt. Please tell. Yeah, Hannah Hannah Arendt wrote a lot about um, the Holocaust and Nazism and the complicity of Germans in the Holocaust during World War II, and um, and she said that in a totalitarian system, which is the most corrupt system yes. of all where the people are the least empowered she said even thinking the right thought is an act of protest wow and uh and i think that as as we grapple with yes. large systems we have to empower ourselves to yes. think the right thoughts not to let ourselves be gaslighted mm -hmm. into uh brainwashing mm -hmm. ourselves so and of course you know once you think the right thought there's a pretty good chance that you'll identify an action yes. item that springs from that thought and an opportunity to take action that otherwise would have not occurred to you because you weren't mm -hmm. thinking that thought. And so, you know, the Buddha at the beginning of the Dharmapadna, the first line of the Dharmapadna says, all that we are is the result of what yes. we have thought. Yes. And so, so I think we begin in, in these extreme circumstances with right thoughts thoughts related to what the what the right value is uh what the world would look like if it could look like the one that you want to live in and then from those right thoughts build out but don't minimize the protest of right thought uh embrace the fact that you're having this right thought consider it courageous that you're having this right thought uh honor it and uh and then and then let it lead you you know, nothing is more gratifying about being a podcast host than having those moments where your framework inside shifts. Thank you for just giving me one of those moments, Richard. That was amazing. There is a very scary and weird little story in your book about a man who took some free train rides. Yeah. And that, to me, there's, again, a lot to take away from that little story that ended up not being so little. And it, But right. what I, it takes, one thing that I'll take away from this is, suffice it to say, a man took a few too many free train rides. And right. yet he took that free rain tried, train ride, rain tribe, whatever he was. It was a train ride <laughs> that first day. And... Yep. He began to mentally walk down that slippery slope that ultimately took him to the seventh circle of financial hell, not to right. mention ethical hell. How do 
I keep myself or anyone who's listening or watching from freaking out if we make the wrong choice like he did that first day? How do we just not consign ourselves to saying, well, I did that yesterday. Okay, I did that 365 <laughs> days ago and every day since. I did that for seven years. How do we deal with our own lapses? Because none of us are perfect. We're all going to make ethical choices that are wrong sometimes. It Sure. There's a reason why, uh, you know, just to clarify the, the story, this guy was a banker in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom and he, he, uh, he managed to figure out how to get on his suburban train ride from a suburb and get into London without paying for it. And, and just sort of, you know, he got a, a workaround that allowed him to take the ride for free. And, um, and then once he'd gotten away with it, he just formed a habit of getting away from it. And then he stopped thinking about it. And then he became entitled to have it for free. And then in the end, he was caught uh, having owed the British rail system 46,000 pounds. And he was uh, disbarred from the financial profession by the regulator in the UK because his theft was so uh, so you know gargantuan and it proved that he was an untrustworthy mm -hmm. financial advisor and so they barred him from the industry i think that's a great example of hannah arendt's point what happened to him was he allowed a rationalization to become his thought and the rationalization was nobody will notice mm -hmm. uh it's like shoplifting uh you you uh, find yourself in the store, you forgot your wallet, you need the toothpaste, you just sort of think, well, nobody will notice, and you put it in your purse and walk out. And so there you are, and you have, you knew it was wrong, but you let the nobody will notice thought govern your behavior. And of course, you know, Aristotle teaches us that virtue, just like exercise, is a habit. And as soon as you allow yourself to behave in a way that violates your own conscience, you form the habit of being unvirtuous. So the, 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 the power of two helps. Uh, I know in my own life, uh, I have a very, very loving partner. And uh, looking at her and knowing that I'd just stolen some toothpaste from the yeah. Rite Aid, I think I would have such a strong sense of discontinuity and behave and betrayal yes. that I wouldn't, I, I, I'm not sure I could confess that I'd done it to her, but I would somehow find a way to get the toothpaste back into the store uh, and, uh, and, and, or make it right. Now, sometimes, you know, you, you misbehave, you do something wrong and there's no way to put the toothpaste back. And I think at that point you, you need to recompense mm -hmm. Uh, you need to pay your dues back to get on the right side. And, and, and there's a reason why most religions have periodic worship mm -hmm. services and the Catholic Church has mm -hmm. confession and absolution. These, these churches, you know, way back when the church's influence is waning, but they knew that people yeah. are sinners. They knew that people were inclined to, to give way to temptation. And they wanted to make sure that they could provide them with the means and the resiliency to continue with a virtuous life. And so they provided some rituals to help them. If, if we don't have that religious ritual, then I think we need to have the individual, humanistic, kind of uh, moral renewal, where we realize we've done wrong, and then we commit to doing right, and we show as a apology to the world, 
and of course, no one else knows this is happening, uh, by making a donation to some charity or by doing some uh, volunteer work or by, you know, putting yourself out in some way that sort of writes the balance so that you get your sense of self back. And of course, you make a commitment. This is really important. There's a wonderful quote in the book from Clay Christensen. He's a uh, passed away recently, but he's a colleague of mine from the Harvard Business School. He said, it's much easier to keep your principles 100% yeah. of the time than it is to keep them 98% yeah. yeah. of the time. And that's where rules help. You just have a rule. Don't shoplift. You know, it's not, it's a, so when, so when you don't have your wallet, you go, well, I guess yeah. I better go home and get my wallet. You know, it's just right. rule. And a lot of these things, like don't cheat on your subway fare and don't, uh, you know, don't do all these, don't take a handicap yeah. parking spot and do, you know, all these things that are just sort of day-to-day temptations to violate your own conscience, just have rules and keep them. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to keep a rule than it is to go through an analysis every time uh, about what the right thing to do is. Do you believe, particularly in light of what, you just said about some of these uh, rituals that these historic religious institutions have had, uh, that there is a connection between ethics and our personal spirituality. Oh, absolutely. I think it's the deepest possible connection between those two things. Uh, the more self-aware you are of the spiritual side of your connection. Now, what is, I mean, what is the spiritual side of your life? It's like, it's the side that connects you to all the things greater yes. than yourself. It could be uh, the f- experience of awe when you're in nature or uh, standing at the edge of an ocean. It could be the connection to silence in a place where there's just a profound silence. It could be the love that you experience when you see your child born. Um, All those moments are connections. And it's the connection, that openness, the vulnerability. Because when you connect, you leave yourself wide open to being betrayed. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And that's why it's so special that you are able to release that sense of of protection and control and uh, other things and and give it if it's to God you give it to God if it's to um, to your sense of your uh, tradition or your culture you give it to that but it's giving it away tell us a little bit about your own journey and, and why you say that with such passion well, I mean, for myself, I I uh, had a, I was sort of involuntarily uh, drawn to a life that where values were very prominent, because in my twenties I was a child of a marine general. I mentioned that earlier, and um, he had his father was in the army. My mother's father was in the navy. My sister married a naval officer. There was no doubt in my family that I was going to be a military officer. It was just which academy <laughs> I'd go to, but I was. I was um, lucky enough to get a Navy scholarship, which meant I could go to some other college and still be a Naval officer. Uh, But in the middle of my college years, the Vietnam War erupted in a particularly dramatic way. And I was swept into a new vortex where the values that I had assumed were the values that everybody had suddenly were called into dramatic and, uh, and serious question. Uh, and, and so I was called to decide whether I should go to Mm -hmm. Vietnam and kill people I had no quarrel with. And, 
I came to conclude that I couldn't do it. And so I became a pacifist. And um, so if you can imagine a, uh, a phone call between a 20-year-old son and his uh, Marine Corps general father that he was going to give up his Navy scholarship and become a war yeah. resistor, um, you can imagine what I went through. Um, and the, the, the moment that I made that call, I had a little speech I'd prepared, and um, I read it. <laughs> and after I'd made my speech and I told him what I was doing, there was this long silence on his side of the phone. And then he said three words that I'll never forget, and that have guided me ever since. He said, are you sure? Mm. And as a 20-year-old with a military background, who was making a journey 360 degrees opposite to everything I'd ever known, I couldn't possibly be mm -hmm. sure. But with him that night, I had to be mm -hmm. sure. And I said, yes, mm -hmm. I'm sure. And that committed me to a path where my values were going to uh, be more important in that case than even my family uh, and my family traditions and my culture and my duties as I had been taught them. And so, you know, there was a, uh, it, it was obviously a very disruptive experience and it took me a long time to put my life back together again because when you yeah. do something like that, the narrative, your yeah. story is completely yeah. disrupted. Yeah. But I think from that experience and the time in the years that followed as I investigated myself uh, more thoroughly, I was. I lived in Buddhist monasteries in uh, different parts of the world. I was actually invited to be a Buddhist monk in South Korea. I uh, I learned what the inner life really is, and uh, I learned how um, how important it is to be at peace with it. Talk to us a little bit about your experience as a monk, in uh, as a trigger for your development into who and what you've become today? Well, it's Buddhist meditation. So there's many different spiritual disciplines. And I had investigated most of them by that time. I lived in Israel. I read the whole Bible. I'd, I'd done a whole investigation of Hinduism. Uh, and um, what, what came to me as I sat in Buddhist meditation in this very quiet monastery in, in Sri Lanka, um, was the impermanence of my mm -hmm. thoughts, my feelings, my mental experience, sensations. I suddenly became aware of, of the, the sort of larger picture of how humans fit into nature and how all of it is, is in constant motion. And that our little speck that we call yes. ourselves, you know, me um, is just pretty trivial claim against what's really yeah. going on most yeah. of the time yeah. out there. And I think fundamentally at the end of the day, after the meditation, I became better and more skilled at it. My monk uh, advisor, my teacher, one day sent me into the forest. I'd had a particularly difficult week. And he sent me into the forest next to the monastery. It's a sort of a rainforest, a beautiful place um, in, in the, some, not quite a jungle, but and I, as I walked through the jungle, I looked on the floor 
that I was walking on the floor of the, of the forest. And I, and I noticed for the first time that everything on the forest floor was either dead mm-hmm. or alive. And that it was the dead things that were feeding the living mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And that without death, mm-hmm. you couldn't mm-hmm. have life. And I had this, it was like, it was like the, it's like the, all the big puzzles of life had been this book and it had been written in some code that I couldn't understand. And then as I looked at the forest floor, the code suddenly became wow. clear. And I sat down under a tree and I wept. It was such a, such a, a powerful truth. And I think, I think fundamentally spiritual life is about coming to terms mm-hmm. with death. And if, if you're reconciled to death, one way or the other, I do, I'm yeah. not going to confuse this by saying there's an afterlife, yeah, there isn't, yeah. whatever. But but when you're reconciled to death, then you're released to be to be of service to others. And um, and if you're not reconciled to death, then you spend your life yeah. protecting yourself. Um, and so I think that little seed was where everything else has grown from. Richard, what a wonderful way to lead into what is, unfortunately, the last question of the show today, which is the following. If I have no spirituality, how can I find my own conscience code? Well, I think that the it it starts. I'll go back to connection because I think if you're looking for one anchor to ground a code of behavior in a code of mm-hmm. conduct, it's in mm-hmm. connection and in your duty to protect the innocent, mm-hmm. to be compassionate mm-hmm. about suffering, mm-hmm. and to be willing to allow yourself to have as part of your purpose in life to take opportunities that present themselves. You don't have to go looking for them. Just Mm -hmm. opportunities that present themselves to be of Mm -hmm. service to others, to uh, relieve suffering, and to be of service. And if that's, you know, if I think it doesn't, I don't think you need to have a deep religious background to have those instincts. Humans are social yes. creatures. I think we're kind of evolutionarily programmed to have mm-hmm. that value. Uh, I think once you start down the path of doing that, spiritual insights mm-hmm. will follow. In other words, you will begin to go down the purpose highway. Okay. <laughs> How was that for us? <laughs> wow. That's really good, Scott. <laughs> I think that's really good. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, the, and I would just add to it that there are probably uh, 47 million yes. highways, and all you have to do is go yes. down one of them. Yes. Richard, the conversation has been extraordinary. How can people find out more about you? And let me please plug, I'm going to just pull it up now for those that are watching your book, The Conscience Code. Really, I don't go crazy about a book like <laughs> like this that often on the show, but I, I feel compelled to hear. How can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm pretty simple. Uh, if you look on the web, 
Richard Shell uh, to S H E L L. Uh, you'll find my Wharton website, uh, my faculty website, which links to my personal website, which is grichardshell.com. Um, but you don't have to remember that. You just have to remember Richard Shell Wharton. And you'll find out all of the information on my other books, on me, on my journey, and uh, on what I do at Wharton and, and uh, their, you know, what I what I've written. So I think I'm pretty simple. I love that it. Way. Simplicity is a beautiful thing. Richard, it has been great taking a ride with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. And for everyone tuning in, if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple or a comment on YouTube. And see you next time for another trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A Com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.